Are we living? No. no. Are we laughing? Sometimes. Sometimes. Are we lying? Always. Always. I'm Jen. <laughs> I'm Cameron. <laughs> um, and today it's just going to be the two of us. Um, this special episode today is our final for our entertainment law class. So we decided to interview a few special guests and Cam is now going to introduce them. So, Jordan Gorfinkel, Scott Peterson, and Darren Vincenzo all began their careers at DC Comics in the early 1990s. As part of the fabled team affectionately known as the Bat Guys, they assisted the legendary Batman writer and group editor Denny O'Neill in running the Batman office for the better part of a decade. Peterson and Gorfinkel, known to friends and associates as Gorf, both began as assistant editors to Denny, while Vincenzo first joined DC as a production artist before moving to editorial to become Scott's assistant. They all eventually became editors of various DC titles, shepherding the Batman franchise through one of its most commercially successful periods in the character's 80-plus year history. Their work helped shape mega storylines such as Nightfall, No Man's Land, Birds of Prey, and the still-successful line of books based on various Batman animated series. Their output included countless award-winning projects such as Batman Adventures, Mad Love, Batman Black and White, and Batman Chronicles, among many, many others. All three editors left DC Comics in the late 90s, shortly before comics legend Denny O'Neill's retirement in 2000. Sadly, Denny passed away in 2020. Gorf went on to establish Avalanche Comics Entertainment, a.k.a. Ace, a creative storytelling studio whose past clients include Microsoft, Paramount, Hasbro, the Munich Jewish Museum, the Dallas Holocaust Museum, and others. In addition, Gorf is an acapella musician, music producer, cartoonist, writer, and teacher. Scott Peterson moved on to a successful writing career, contributing to such comic book titles as Batman, Gotham Adventures, Batgirl, where he helped to create a new version of the ever-popular heroine, Batgirl Beyond, creating creating yet another groundbreaking version of Batgirl, Batman, Kings of Fear, and many others. His other projects have included numerous Disney and Marvel kids books and Star Wars and Scooby-Doo comics, as well as an original graphic novel called Truckus Maximus for first, second books. Darren Vincenzo went on to a freelance career doing story development, writing, editing, and art directing on various animation, video game, and comics projects. From 2012 to 2017, he was a talent scout for an artist rep agency, Space Goat Productions, supplying talent to Marvel, DC, Dark Horse Comics, Universal Studios, and dozens of others. He was also an editor and art director for independent comics publisher Space Goat Publishing, which held the comic book license to Evil Dead 2. In recent years, he has branched out as an art teacher and painting instructor while still freelancing in the comic book industry. I think we should start off by just going around one at a time. <laughs> I feel like we're in like the start of a class. Like, okay, we're going to introduce ourselves and then we're going to say a fun fact. Um, okay, so. Hi, I'm Gorf and I like <laughs> elephants and I eat um, pop tarts. Next. <laughs> I love that. Isn't that how this works? Or do I have to That's pass perfect. on what the guy before me said? Well, that's a different game. <laughs> Yeah, so just, like, name, obviously. Um, Like you said, you guys have done so much and over so many years. Um, And yet so little. Just, (laughs) like, a quick little... 
what are you doing now? How did you get into the industry? Whatever you want, but something relevant to entertainment law or not just entertainment in general would be helpful. <laughs> okay, Scott, you go first. Uh, dude, I was racking my brains trying to think of what to say. So actually, if I go first, I'm stoked because we all basically have the same thing to say about ourselves. So if I go first, <laughs> that puts the onus on you two. So I'm fine with that. <laughs> for some reason, I was not prepared for this question. This was the one I wasn't prepared for. Oh boy! <laughs> I'm Scott Peterson. I was a Batman editor at DC Comics in the 90s. I later was an editor at Wildstorm. And I've been a freelance writer and editor since uh, the year 2000, more or less. Perfect. Yeah. <clears throat> Super cool. Great example. Moving on. <laughs> Go ahead, Gorf. You next. All right. My name is Gorf, short for Jordan B. Gorfinkel. It's frog backwards. Now you won't forget me. And what Scott said, your turn, Darren. <laughs> well, tell him a little bit about what you do now, Gorf. Oh, what I do now. Yeah, what you do now. So my name is Gorf. I was part of the Bat Guys team under the auspices of group editor Denny O'Neill, our sensei, master of blessed memory. And collectively, we worked on more than 2,000 stories across a decade in which we grew the Batman franchise from two books a month to two books a week and associated non-continuity titles as well. We were in charge of overseeing the entire franchise. Our titles were editor, but that belies our actual responsibilities, which really meant that we had to be jacks of all trade. We had to understand the, supply, the complete supply chain we had to understand how to do everything across all of the systems that made Batman products, from the inception of the ideas to the publishing of the books and everything in between, all the direct, create, creative direction, but also liaisoning with lots of other teams, such as the guys and gals who made the TV shows and the movies and the merchandise and the Six Flag Great America rides. Everything that was Batman, we had to be able to oversee. And that meant that we had to understand all of the processes involved in making all of that uh, content and product, which meant that we had to also have uh, at least a cursory knowledge of the copyright and trademark law involved. And in fact, I, I may be quoting out of turn, but I think that one of our executives at some point said that essentially the real purpose, the dirty little secret, the real purpose of comic books is to be a trademark holding company because comic books are not in and of themselves a terribly profitable vertical. But if you look at the horizontals, meaning all of the ancillary exploitations of that underlying uh, content or that underlying property, then suddenly it becomes a far more interesting proposition. See, that was gold right there. I feel like we can be done. We're, we can, we're done. Okay, let's just all wrap right. this up then. We said uh, all the professor's buzzwords, so we're good. By the way, I should tell you that when I was working at DC Comics, there's very little of this that I really understood. I look at DC Comics as having been my graduate program. I was essentially paid to understand uh, this area of the business, well, the, the, the creative area of the business. But because when you're working at a corporation, you basically stay in your lane. Many times when you have a problem, you're just handed off to the person whose lane that is. So when it came to budgeting and accounting, it went to editorial administration. And when it came to legal, it went to our legal advisors and so forth. It wasn't until I parted amicably 
from DC Comics and went off on my own that I began to discover two things. Number one, that uh, there that Batman opens a lot of doors and continues to open doors to this day, for which I'm very grateful. But number two, there was a whole lot that I really truly did not understand. I thought I could go out into the world and just say, I'm Batman. And the world would be my kosher oyster. It turns out, no, it doesn't really work that way. You have to have a real understanding of all the aspects of entrepreneurship, if that's such a word, in order to be able to succeed. So in that time, in the past 20 years, I've had the opportunity many times with these mugs over here to work on projects for corporations, for nonprofits, for entertainment companies, and from the ground up, learn all the stuff that I really didn't learn at the time, which is the trademark law, the copyright law, the common law practices, best uh, best practices. You know, what do phrases like best efforts mean? Uh, how do you negotiate a contract? What are you looking for in royalties? Once you start really getting into it, there's so much that people who are listening to this podcast or students right now don't know yet, but will know and will be so important uh, in guiding people like me to make the best of their career. Well, let me intro myself before we continue our discussion. Uh, my name is Darren Vincenzo, along with uh, Scott and Gorf. Uh, back in the 90s, I was uh, part of the Batman team, uh, overseeing all things Batman. Uh, and as Gorf said, we sat in on meetings for creating costumes for characters that would, you know, Batman actors who would appear make appearances. I mean, we sat in on meetings about Batman the musical. I mean, we sat oh, in God. meetings with <laughs> we sat in on meetings with uh, toy companies and and you know movie people and all that kind of stuff. But uh, you know, I, I'm Scott. I'm not sure how it worked at. Uh, uh, Wildstorm, but we remember when we were at DC, you know, we were very insulated from a lot of the the legal end of things. I mean, we were in charge of the creative end of stuff. So yeah, we did oversee a lot of things. We took a lot of meetings, but our primary purpose there was to decide, you know, what happened to Batman, where the character went, what the storylines were that we, the stories that we told. Uh, and a lot of the stuff the legal end of things or, or, you know, some of those other details we didn't get too caught up in because we were insulated from that. We had departments who handled those things. You know, we didn't have to worry too much about that because we had people who were paid to worry about that kind of stuff. Uh, one example, I, I may, it'll probably come up in our discussion later, but uh, you know, while uh, dealing with the movie people and working on one of the uh, movie adaptations, the comic book version of the movie, you know, every, every movie that was made, uh, we did a comic book version of it. You know, we told that story and, and, you know, a writer had to write that story and an artist had to create that story. And uh, in one particular instance, uh, some images, some stills were used from one of the films and they happen to involve uh, some statuary or some, you know, objects that an artist had created in some famous location somewhere. And when the artist saw that these images appeared in the comic, he actually sued DC comics and the creative team of the, uh, of the story of that particular story, because those images were used without his permission. And uh, I think the guys will remember, we got a, a letter, you know, we were shown a letter that came and of course it, it named, I don't know if it named us, but it named the creators who worked on that particular comic. And we looked at it and we 
gave it the attention that we needed to give it, which really was none. And then it was handed over to the, said, yeah, the, the lawyers will take care yeah, of that. The lawyers <laughs> will take care of it. And that, uh, and we just went on with our daily life of deciding what Batman's going to do tomorrow and the day after and the next month and next year and that kind of stuff. So as creators though, because like you're saying, you weren't hands-on involved necessarily in legal stuff, um, registering copyrights, stuff like that. But as creators, what are your thoughts of generally about copyright? Um, we've talked a lot in class about like the purpose of copyright, why it was created that people could register copyrights, and the fact that it incentivizes creativity. What do you guys think about that, its purpose, and then what maybe do you think are its downfalls um, as the people who are creating these things that are copyrighted as opposed to just the people who know about copyright and know about the legal stuff. Well, before we answer that question, why don't you in fact give a primer to our listeners on why copyright was created, what its original intention and purpose was, and even give a little bit of background into how copyrights have been constantly extended and what the net effect of that is. This feels like I'm being cold called in class right now. (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly Um, what's happening. Yeah. Well, I mean, like I said, incentivizing creativity, you don't want people to just be able to create the same thing and have no repercussions of that. But it also with fair use and with um, people just allowing other people to use their works, then copyright allows people to build off of other people's um, creativity and create new and interesting things while there's also still protection for the person who created the original. Right. I mean, Gorf, Gorf and I were, we came out of art school, we're artists ourselves. So, uh, you know, as, as visual creators, you know, copyright protects images we create. It, It protects, of course, you know, any characters that we create and create stories around them. I mean, if, if there was no protection for that, if something became popular or when when things we create become popular, anyone could just take it and run with it without laws to protect that and protect our our ownership of that, our, our creation of that, you know, it would be chaos. Yeah. And then obviously, like the monetary aspect, um, when you have copyright, you're able to make money off of what you've made. Really? Yeah, I'm not sure. Gorf, I'm not sure we ever thought about that. What about you, Scott? (laughs) So I'm actually coming at this from, I think, a different perspective than perhaps most in our position. I think copyright is a great idea that has been so massively abused that I think it may on balance be more harmful to creators than helpful. I think it is extraordinarily helpful to the top 1% of creators in any medium. I think it is harmful to the bottom 50% of creators in probably any medium. And I don't know about the other 49%. I don't know if you're familiar with the the YouTuber, Adam Neely. He's a, a jazz bassist who does, he started just doing electric bass lessons on YouTube 10 years ago, but he has become more of a, a musical philosopher in some ways. And he has made many videos responding to copyright lawsuits like the Marvin Gaye estate suing, what's his name for Blurred Lines? Mm-hmm. Uh, Robin Thicke, right? That's who yes. did Blurred Lines. 
and how absurd that ruling was. Same thing with the unbelievably absurd lawsuit over Bittersweet Symphony by The Verve, where they gave away their entire copyright to somebody who had nothing to do with the song Bittersweet Symphony because of a little sample being overused. His analogy, he just I just watched his video this morning, he put out yesterday his latest video on it, where he talked about how essentially this thing was created out of whole cloth back in something like 1550 by King Louis. I think it was, it was, it was someone in France who just sort of, again, the intention was good. It was to protect creators. It was to enable creators to make a good living and therefore, in theory, incentivize the creation of further art. The problem is, is that we have so much great art, again, going specifically to music, where you would have somebody like Beethoven who would compose variations on the theme of somebody earlier, Bach, Vivaldi, Mozart, whatever, and that was fine. He would take their melodies and he would turn it into a whole new piece, something that would be completely impossible today without splitting ownership or more. And his point was, in when it comes to music, it's an analogy is it really is sort of like if a recipe for if the ham sandwich was copyrighted and nobody was allowed to make a ham sandwich without paying the the owner of the copyright. The problem, of course, the bigger problem is that it's so rarely the originator of the ham sandwich, the melody, the court, the, the lyrics, whatever, who are actually the copyright owner, right? Because it's almost always bought up by a major corporation. So it's the famous thing where this was a big deal. You guys, I don't know if you've studied this in class, happy birthday. If you watch movies or television shows from the 80s, 90s, and possibly aughts, when it's somebody's birthday, they don't sing happy birthday because the copyright for that was bought and owned by, ultimately, Warner Brothers. And it was the kind of thing where you had to pay them so much money to have people singing happy birthday on your episode of Modern Family that it wasn't worth it. You'd have a birthday party without them singing, or they'd sing some other song. That finally got struck down about 10 years ago, if I'm recalling correctly. But that's the absurdity. It's not the two sisters who theoretically wrote the melody to happy birthday, who are, or even their heirs, who are earning any kind of monetary benefits from it. It's some massive corporation. Bob Dylan, Tom Petty, Bruce Springsteen, they all just sold their catalogs. So great. They get to do that, 100%. But I do find it really offensive that the ultimate result of this isn't just that Chevy trucks or whatever are going to have Born in the USA plan behind them, which is a problem. It's that 30 years from now, some up-and-coming hungry singer-songwriter is going to write a gorgeous, heartfelt song and get sued to smithereens by some massive multinational national mega corporation who decides that their melody sounds a little bit too much like some obscure B-side that Bruce Springsteen re- released, you know, in 1981, that by that point, a, a dozen people in the world had heard of, but the algorithm on YouTube picked up. That's the problem with copyright. It's the same thing to some extent with books. So often the majority of books go out of print. And if copyright wasn't so restrictive and the copyright weren't of these of these novels weren't held by some massive corporation that decides it's actually too much too expensive to bring them back into print so the books just lapse into obscurity whereas if copyright was once again only 20 years or the life of the author or whatever they could be brought back into print and the works would live i think it actually hurts creators boy am i monopolizing
<laughs> Not to mention the way Disney and Warner Brothers, to use the two most obvious ones, because they've got Congress wrapped around, you know, their three-fingered gloved hands, come out with something like a new version of Sleeping Beauty or Cinderella. You have to be so careful not to run afoul of anything that approaches the Disney version that I think it actually inhibits creativity these days. That is, that is at least part of my, my spiel about how I feel about copyright. I think it's a great idea that, as it's applied now, is at best neutral and probably is on balance actually a bad thing for creators by actually inhibiting their creativity. Scott, before you, before you uh, run, you are a Shakespeare scholar. And I don't mean that um, in any kind of ironic way. You really are. And Shakespeare would not exist. Right. Well, take it from there. Well, so right. So Shakespeare wrote roughly 40 plays, right? Of which, again, depending on how you count them, possibly as few as two or three, and certainly no more than seven or eight are actually his original ideas. So some of them are histories. So that's, that's a different category. But a lot of them, at the time, it was the standard where if you were a playwright, you went and saw, say, Hamlet. And you were like, wow, that was great. You know what? I'm going to rewrite that. And you would rewrite it, maybe, using literally the same names or tweaking the names slightly, using the same plots. Occasionally, you would, use, you would use the same themes, maybe. Or maybe you would put a spin on it and think that, no, what I think the main thrust of his play is, I think he's wrong about that. So you would tweak it. But it's the kind of thing that, again, without question, would be so completely and totally illegal these days that nobody would ever even consider it, much less putting it on. And the result is, well, we, if the laws had been in place then, we wouldn't have Shakespeare. The laws are in place today. Is this really keeping us from having another Shakespeare? Doesn't seem likely to me, but you know, who knows? It's, I, it's, it's hard to say. The, the things like story structure, whether it's the three-act structure or the whole thing with rising action, you know, rising action, the climax, the denouement, all that kind of stuff, is so ingrained that to some extent, there's kind of only so much you can do. So if... Romeo and Juliet had been written 60 years or something like that later, you would never have gotten a West Side Story. And would we be better off if there were no West Side Story? Like, you know, I, I don't see how that how that's true. No. So, yeah, I think copyright law is really screwed. I think it's completely, it's, as usual, the 1% of the 1%, it's great for them, and they've twisted the system so that now it's only great for them, and they've completely turned everything around. And I'm going to show you another perspective on this, which is sometimes it can actually benefit the creators. An example of that is with Superboy, where Superboy was created by Jerry Siegel. Uh, it's a very long, convoluted history that uh, Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster created Superman. And over time, Jerry was the more outspoken one. He got drummed off of his own creation, which he had sold for $400 or something to national periodicals, which would become DC Comics. And he became such a liability in the view of the publishers that they kicked him off Superman. Well, years later, I don't know under what circumstances, they brought him back and he created Superboy. And somehow or other, the contract was such that uh, eventually in recent times, the ownership of Superboy came into question. And if, if there's a curious period where if you look, for example, at the a uh, now obscure Legion of Superheroes animated show, 
they couldn't refer to Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes, which is how most of us fanboys know it. Rather, they had to refer to it as Superman or not refer to him by name at all because there was an argument going on, legal argument going on between the estate of Jerry Siegel and uh, DC Comics now owned by Warner Brothers. And in the end, I think the way it came down, and again, I'm no expert here, I might be getting the details wrong, but the, the essence of it is Superboy had to be licensed back to DC Comics so that they could continue to use it so that every future appearance of Superboy would kick back the appropriate licensing fee to the estate of Jerry Siegel. Scott, you mentioned uh, or you referred to music and, and copyright, you know, squashing creativity in music. Is there a, a, a comic book, you know, parallel? Is there a comic book equivalent that, uh, you know, we're familiar with the history of comics, of course, and, you know, way, way back, DC Comics uh, suing, you know, Fawcett, publications when they came out with the the Shazam you know Captain Marvel character because it was too close to Superman and and uh you know they they won that and of course then eventually years later they acquired Fawcett so now DC Comics owns Shazam but uh in more recent years is there a a parallel to the the squashing of creativity that you were referring to in in music and in even in uh in writing in novels two answers to that um, one, Gorf, I'm going to get back to your Superboy thing in a second. But number two, I think like the the Brat Pack miniseries that Rick Veach, I think, put out. Remember that one in the 90s? It was uh, a grim and gritty satire of the Teen Titans, more or less. Like, you know, they'd grown up and gotten into heroin and that kind of stuff. That's my recollection. It would be maybe the closest I can think of, but I would say probably not. And it's because... If I'm recalling correctly, something like 10,000 new songs get uploaded to Spotify, Bandcamp, and YouTube every single day. So how many new comics get published in any way, independent or majors, in a given year? You know, uh, do you think there's 10,000 in the world? I think there are so many fewer people who are going to spend so much longer writing, illustrating, coloring, lettering, blah, blah, blah publishing a story, including text, right? Stephen King, famously, insanely fast writer, even he takes three months to write a novel. And he's, again, one of the most famously fast writers, whereas we've all heard about, well, many of us geeks have heard about the likes of Prince or the Beatles or Dylan or whomever. You know, Dylan recorded his his fourth album in one night with a bottle of wine, you know, went into the studio, walked out six, six hours later with a masterpiece. You can't really do that with a short story, never mind a novel or a comic book. So I think among other things that gives you time to think, Hmm, should I spend four months of my life dedicated to creating something that is almost certainly going to get me sued by Lucasfilm? So I think it's the, the way it inhibits creativity is I think, and I'm just, again, I'm not an expert. I don't have the stats for this. I think people just think, yeah, no, why? I'm just going to create funny memes for, for Tumblr. <laughs> oh. That's a really interesting perspective from you, Scott. Like, we're always taught about the benefits of copyright and trademark in class. It's really interesting talking about and thinking about the, the cons and, the, and the, the bad side of, of those things. If you're the likes of Paul McCartney, man, copyright has done great by you. You know, don't get me wrong. And as... I'm sure you all know the history of the Beatles. Three of them grew up extremely poor. So 
Paul McCartney's a billionaire these days. I could not be happier about that. That's awesome. That's the way copyright's supposed to work. But ye, I, I think there's a big danger in extrapolating from look how well it works for the 1% of the 1%. And you kind of have to look at the, the bell curve and how's it working for the majority of the people, you know, in the middle of that, of that distribution. Is it a good thing or a bad thing? I mean, I also think a lot of it is the fact that copyright has now been around for so long and like more and more stuff is coming out and being copyrighted. And we talked about in class back when like maps were copyrighted, (laughs) like maps of like coming over to America (laughs) um, were copyrighted and like stuff like that. And so it's like, yeah, back then there wasn't, if someone's creating a map of uncharted territory, there's not stuff that they're going to be copying but nowadays it's like you're saying with music so much is out there that a lot of what you're going to do is going to be copying something that's out there and we need to change the laws to keep up with how saturated I feel like a lot of the types of media are these days and we're kind of behind the that and and we've had a number of experiences of our own uh you know, in addition to being editors and, you know, we're, we're creators, of course, we're writers, we're entrepreneurs in terms of creating intellectual properties. And boy, how many times have we come up with ideas? We come up with characters, whole concepts, and, you know, within a few years, while it's sitting in our vault or while we're trying to interest somebody in it, you know, we find out somebody else came up with the same idea independently and it's being made into a new movie, a new animated series, a new animated feature, whatever, and create something that you've all of a sudden find out is has a lot in common with something that was created by somebody a few years ago or 10 years ago. And all of a sudden they could be suing you thinking that you ripped it off from them when you came up with it totally independently. Darren, go ahead. They did. They did rip us off. <laughs> I mean, it's happened numerous times. I, you know. Num- numerous times. Numerous but all joking times. aside, I mean, you and I pitched Star Trek back in the day in the 90s. Right. Uh, or maybe it was the OOs, probably, because we were on staff in the 90s. And Star Trek used to have an open pitch policy where anybody could send in an idea a script and you sign a waiver, obviously. But it was very risky for them. But they found new writers that way, new stories that way. And the reason there was such a proliferation of creativity in the Star Trek franchise in the 90s was in great part due to this open pitch policy where anybody had an open door to submit an idea. And by the way, the new iteration of Star Trek does not have this policy. And it's because, as Scott was telling us, it's just too fraught. And we're losing something as a result. Yeah, Darren, that's funny you say that. I was going to ask you guys, have you ever innocently like created something that you realized, oh, shoot, like this already exists or like this idea is already somewhere out in the world and I must have seen it somewhere and that's where I came up with it or something like that? Great question. It is a great question. I mean, more often, again, in our experience is we come up with an idea that, you know, we're fairly sure is is original and sometime shortly thereafter, someone else independently, I mean, nobody's, you know, listening in on our conversations, but somebody else independently. Don't know that. Well, we don't know that, but. The NSA is totally listening in. <laughs> <laughs> but we all of a sudden see that something's in the works at this comic company or this, you know, movie studio or this animation studio that 
has a lot of similarities to something we came up with. And it's just independent created, you know, creators coming up with things that are similar and just one, one studio beating, you know, another group to the punch. I mean, it, it happens, I'm sure, in the industry every day, every week, I'm sure. On the one hand, you want to protect your ideas. You feel like, well, if I tell this to an executive, they're going to maybe run with my idea and not pay me for it. But the catch-22 is you need to be able to tell your idea in order to make something happen, but you need to make something happen in order to be able to tell your idea. And you just can't win unless you take a risk. And you have to be comfortable knowing that with creativity comes... Great responsibility. Thank you. <laughs> uh, by the way, I was trying not to go in that direction, and I got I'm stuck, sorry. as you heard. I, I, sh- I shouldn't have. You were on a roll. Shouldn't have gone there. So Actually, I'm sorry, Scott. I want to no, 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 build on... Something that goes. Wait, wait. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm I'm the Bluto of uh, <laughs> of this conversation. Oh, don't stop him. He's on rolls. Okay, go ahead, Darren. <laughs> I was going to say one way to make it in Hollywood or make it in comics or make it in a creative field is to think years ahead. But another way to make a, a, a living in Hollywood or in some of these creative industries is to just look at what other people are doing and mimic it closely enough that you can sell your your idea or your product and you know you try to stay just different enough from what's being done so that you don't get sued or if you do get sued then you you drop it and you move on to something else and there are a lot of a, a huge number of people who obviously that's their bread and butter they look at what's big you know star wars i mean back in the 70s when star wars took off you know how many ripoffs how many you know, movies, how many characters, how many comic books, how many toys, how many things did you see that were blatantly trying to cash in on that? And some were extremely close and some were not close to, you know, or not close at all, or were different enough that they, they weren't getting sued. I mean, from the perspective of George Lucas and, and the creators of Star Wars and, you know, and, and name your property, fill in the blank, any big property of any era, if you were, you were those people, then you, you wanted those laws to be in place to, to protect you, for you to be able to turn to the courts or turn to lawyers or turn wherever so that you could protect your investment, your property, your intellectual property, you know, and, and it's true today. I mean, you're creating, you know, whatever, whatever, if you're creating the latest great movie, the latest TV series, animated series, whatever, if somebody is creating something new that's really close to that, you kind of want to stop them so that they don't impose on your, you know, or infringe on your cash cow, <laughs> basically. Well, let's take an example from our own milieu, the graphic novel. And I think, Scott, you can definitely talk to this, Darren, perhaps you as well. When artists are drawing, they many times don't create the images in their head and then it gets translated through their hand onto paper or these days onto a digital stylus. Many times they're looking at photo reference. So they're looking at pictures to guide them in how to draw this right. Sometimes artists can run afoul of that because they literally copy the photograph and thanks to the internet, they can get called out on it now too. So Artists need to have an understanding of how to keep something as inspiration, but not cross that line into uh, copying. Who was the art? I don't want to name, you know, let's not name names, but uh, there was an artist who was uh, nailed by the internet for doing that, right? Naming the name, anybody remember what that situation was? 
Well, there's there's a couple. I mean, there's the, the the cover artist who used to do you know lots and lots of really interesting, really popular images, and it turned out he was ripping off album covers and and you know famous you know model images. And once the internet really kind of took off, once people could look those things up, they were finding a lot of examples of things that the artist was inspired by, to put it mildly. I mean, there was an artist with whom the three of us worked pretty closely. Right. I'm thinking of him too. Yep. (laughs) Who could really draw, but after a while, basically just started photocopying like Sports Illustrated swimsuit issues and painting whatever, you know, Jean Grey's costume onto, onto her bathing suit. And it got really, really blatant there for a while. It was embarrassing. It might still, might still be. I don't know. I also wondered, to your point, though, about overusing photoref Gorf so much, I believe, of mainstream superhero comics these days. The figures are frequently done in Poser, or, or, or they were. I assume there's, there's a, an app or software that, that's more updated from there. And the backgrounds are done in like SketchUp. So Jen and Cam, in case you don't know, there are these apps where you can take a human figure. I think you can also do it for animals, but take a human figure. You can put in the dimensions for roughly, let's say it's a, it's a male, six foot four, 130 pounds, muscular, or you could do female, five foot one, 103 pounds, you know, gymnast. And you can, you know, twist them around in, you know, three-dimensional, up, down. You can rotate them anyway, put them in any pose, like it's a digital action figure, only tailor-made to the exact kind of body type you want. And now you've got your, your figure that you can then, again, put the costume details on. Same thing with backgrounds. They've got backgrounds where you can just, you can build a cityscape and the perspective is perfect and you can decide what kind of, how much you want to use it and stuff like that. And the kind of things that can be invaluable tools for a commercial artist who's on a tight deadline, but it's also the kind of thing that I think can really easily just become a crutch. And I guess I don't really know if there's ever been any kind of copyright issue about that. I know that as AI, art has taken leaps and bounds in the past four months already, just, you know, just the past four months, AI art has grown exponentially, which I think wasn't there just a case that said that it cannot be copyrighted something about that but that's that's going to be really tricky because if if you're not keeping up on if you haven't looked into that look into what ai art looks like today and seriously the way it looks today as opposed to the way it looked four months ago is staggering so that because this stuff is exponential a year or two from now from now it's it's unimaginable what AI art is going to be like and who knows what that will, will mean in a legal sense. But some of the the software you mentioned, Scott, I mean, we're all familiar with that and, and have been for years, but I'm sure that the current stuff is, is developed specifically for artists. So there wouldn't be any necessarily any copyright issues or, or any problems say with somebody using those things. Right. Right. Uh, But, but the, the, the end result of the using of that thing I, I just wonder if I don't know if if what if the way you're creating art is just by using putting together these existing things, can you then copyright it? And maybe the answer is an unambiguous yes. If you take Legos and you create something 
can you copyright the sculpture that you've created using Legos? Right. And this, some of the, the AI art that I've seen, I mean, is, is amazing stuff. I mean, you know, why on earth wouldn't you be able to create, to copyright that? I guess, you know, if you, if you are the impetus or the, the, the right. force behind creating it, I mean, yes, right. a machine creates it, a, an artificial intelligence creates it, but once that image is created, you know, I've seen some pretty amazing stuff. So somebody, somebody's got to own that. <laughs> so Jen and Cam, what we're saying is already today, you can input into some of these AI programs, application websites. You could literally put in something like Brad Pitt sitting on top of a burning 747 in the style of painter Andrew Wyeth. And you'll get something that looks like Andrew Wyeth painted Brad Pitt on top of a burning 747. It's insane. So the question is, can you then copyright that because it was your idea, even though you didn't paint it, you don't probably have the rights to Brad Pitt's likenesses, you know, that kind of thing. I initial, my initial reaction to that is no. Like (laughs) the lawyer in me is like, oh my God, no, you can't copyright. You know what? Let me just get Brad Pitt on the, on my cell phone here. and and Brad, baby. (laughs) But I'm like, yeah, you arguably created it, but A, the AI created it physically and B, both uh, both the style and the person are not something that you initially created. Like nothing in that is something that you created other than putting it together. Devil's advocate. <laughs> you as the human being who programmed the inputs came up with the creativity of how to combine those different ingredients. So it's not that different than a chef saying, I'm going to create a cookbook. And I'm going to copyright that cookbook. One reason that I really wanted to do this conversation specifically was we had a whole class where we had a guest um, speaker come in who had written a law review article about Disney and copyright and how like Mickey Mouse, the OG Mickey Mouse um, copyright is running out um, and some sort of like predictions about what will happen, um, with that and how Disney will react and, you know, all that stuff. I wanted to just kind of like, I thought it'd be cool if we can draw some parallels between, um, that situation with Disney and then like DC, I would say Marvel, but that's owned by Disney now. So, um, but yeah, like just what are your guys thoughts about that? How can you sort of relate that to the comic industry or anything that you guys have been involved in? Um, That was like a major topic that I wanted to talk about. We have to take a break right now, but we'll be back after a word from our sponsor, the Batman Aria. Na, 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 na. Jennifer, da 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 da. Let's put some words to it. Podcaster Jennifer, Jennifer, da 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 da. Pow, this, bam, boom, wah. Da 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 da. I refuse to allow myself to be recorded. Jennifer. Wow, I think that's going to be the intro to this episode. That's good. While you run the credits. We just you- jump into the conversation after that. There's no no other intro. Right. What else? Do you- right. People- By the way, though, as I'm seeing that, I'm thinking that sounds like I see a silhouette. I see a little silhouette. Oh, yeah. 
Batman's got a moose, got a moose. Do you do your Batman go? I mean, it sounds really similar. That's Copyright true. Issue. <laughs> right. Yep. So are we going to sue, uh, what's his name? The the great jazz uh, composer, conductor who wrote that theme song. Oh, I can't think of his name right now. Wait, what are you talking about? Like, what did I miss? Seriously, who sued what theme song? Well, he was singing so we, the we, Batman theme, and he noticed the the uh, similarity uh, to the Queen. What was it? Uh, Bohemian Rhapsody. Bohemian. No, Rhapsody. No, 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 no. I see a little silhouette of a mad scaramouche. No, 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 no. Batman. Just noticed that. And Neil Hefty, I think, is the uh, composer of the uh, Batman theme. No, he's the guy who created the trash bags. <laughs> <laughs> right. I always get them confused. Oh my God. I understand that. <laughs> <laughs> okay break over so let's hop into trademark really quick one does not hop into trademark <laughs> one dives in all right we're diving into trademark we've talked about in class the purposes of trademark um which at a very basic level um is to identify the source and the origin of a product or a creation so one funny example that we had in class was that you can't trademark a brand California grapes if you grow them in Connecticut, but if you grow them in California, then you can (laughs) Um, because you're telling people that they were grown in California. Um, And so if they aren't grown in California, then the consumer doesn't know for sure that like where their product is coming from. What's the difference between copyright and trademark? Again, this feels like a cold call. Cam, you want to take this one? No, not really. Quiz. <laughs> Please. You, Cam, you have to take that one so I can call you Candid Cam. Oh, my gosh. Is Googling it okay? I just uh, Scott was raising his hand. Scott, go ahead. Yeah. You got this. Copyrights primarily protect the rights of people who create literary, literary, dramatic, musical, artistic, and certain other intellectual works. Trademarks protect the use of a company's name and its product names brand identity, like logos, and slogans. Cam would also like to contribute something about the difference. Oh, yes, Cam! Shut me up! The light bulb (laughs) went off. Our professor had an ingenious way (laughs) of describing it to us. But he had told us to, like, break down the word. So, like, copyright, the right to copy. Duh. (laughs) Duh. (laughs) And then trademark. The mark of your trade. Yeah, the mark mark of your your trade. Yeah. So... Batman, the man bat. The man that is also a bat. There you go. See, it's all in the word. So the copyright bit, that had never occurred to me before. Like, that makes so much sense. I had just never thought about it. I know. Hmm. See, you're teaching us and we're teaching you. (laughs) You We're we're teaching you to vet your guests much more carefully in the future. (laughs) So my understanding is right that Disney might lose the copyright to Mickey Mouse. I tend to be with Gorf and think it will probably never happen, but at least one or two people that I know who know this stuff pretty well thinks that it actually, this is the time it actually might. But because the likes of Mickey Mouse and Superman are so entrenched in the identity of Disney and DC, you're not going to be able to actually use those images nearly as much as you might think the way you can theoretically just use if somebody wanted to could just use you know tom sawyer or hamlet or whatever 
it's going to be a lot harder to use. Sherlock Holmes or right. Dracula. Well, actually, isn't that the thing? Only some Sherlock Holmes is public domain. If I'm recalling correctly, he straddles the line enough that only the first couple Sherlock Holmes are public domain and the last couple aren't. So when you're creating a new Sherlock Holmes, the copyright owner of the later stories goes off over it like a hawk to make sure you're not using anything that was only used in the later stories. Something you said about the, uh, about Sherlock Holmes and the, and the, you know, availability or the, the use, you know, be able to use a certain version and not another version that, that article that uh, Jennifer sent us about the, uh, you know, Batman and Superman entering the public domain. And it mentions how different those original characters, the, the very first appearances of, the, of those characters, how different they are from the current incarnations. You know, I wonder if, you know, when those characters, if they enter the public domain, if you were, were to be, uh, you know, just pick up, I mean, basically where, say, the first issue of Superman left off or the first issue of Batman left off and, and present the character just as the character appeared in those those issues in those in those years and created new stories new material with those versions of the characters if that would be something that somebody could get away with so you can you can create new batman stories but only if he uses a gun right i mean he wears only, purple gloves yeah he's yeah. drawn in that in that style and the most important example of course of trademark is the yellow circle around the bat the reason that was done was so that they could trademark the batman emblem beforehand it was deemed that that squiggle bat just the plain old black bat that batman wore on his chest right, was not be. a strong enough uh icon to be uh trademarkable so exactly. julius schwartz put a yellow circle around it bada bing and even the Superman S, I mean, the very first version of it was just really kind of an S inside a triangle and a yeah, yeah. triangle. Exactly. It was, it's actually not even a triangle. It was a shield. Yeah. It looked like, you know, one of those classic iron shields. But of yeah. course, once they were, once they were actually designed and, and those trademarks, you know, those, those images were created. Now they're recognizable virtually anywhere in the planet. I think what's fascinating is they put the yellow circle around the bat in order to trademark it. And us fanboys, once again, or is it we fanboys? We, it's we. We fanboys couldn't stand that yellow circle and wanted so desperately to go back to just the bat alone. And funny enough, nowadays, there are endless iterations of that yellow circle-less bat shape, bat, bat iconography that exist and I bet are copyrighted. And I'm wondering, well, why is the Christopher Nolan bat shape without a yellow circle around it copyrightable, whereas the original Bob Kane, uh, Bill Finger, Jerry Robinson version bat was squiggle. not. The bat squiggle. That, that also is the name of the dance that you do to the Batman aria. That's true. That's cool. So, Gorf, I assume you don't have an answer to that question, do you? I do not. Yeah, I, I don't either, and I find it really interesting, and I've wondered about it myself. I assume it's when they added the bat circle, it was national pe- uh, periodical publications or whatever, and they were a fraction as large a company. I wonder if it's as simple as who is going to rule against Warner Brothers on a copyright issue like this 
you know, in this century. Well, fortunately, we have an expert litigator here. Jennifer Vincenzo, what say you with? So are we talking about trademark? Because we started talking about how it was trademarked and then we started saying copyright. So are we talking right, about trademark? Right. Trademark. Okay. So, trademark. So I think that initially when it didn't already exist in any form and you just had a bat symbol, they right. said, this is just a bat. It's just a bat. Just a... Right. And then you put the yellow circle on it. It's It's original enough that it can be trademarked. But as that keeps being used and being recognized, you get to a point where people look at just the bat without the yellow circle and they're not confused because they know that that's the Batman bat. And since a lot of trademark is about consumer confusion, <laughs> um, there, it got to a point where they said, that's not an issue anymore. So now you can trademark just the bat. That would be my guess as to why I also think I mean we we talked about the original bat emblem you know in the on the old batman as being a squiggle and that in many ways that's really what it was it was a it was a bat image or a bat bat shape but it really wasn't a stylized you know it really wasn't a designed shape it really wasn't something that was specifically created to be an individual stylized bat shape in fact, I was looking today, I'm reading the New York Times, and up pops an ad for the Lion King musical, and it has that that very well-known, instantly recognizable lion head shape that you see, you know, all over the place. I mean, it's basically the head of a lion, but it's stylized, it's created in such a way that it's instantly recognizable as Lion King, and if you started to put that on mugs and shirts and, and, you know, posters and things, I'm sure Disney or whomever would come after you because that lion head that you're using is recognizable or was created as the Lion King image. And it's similar, I think, with, with the bat symbol, where it went from many, many, many years ago being just this squiggly bat shape, it became a stylized bat in the yellow yellow oval, of course, and it was able to be trademarked. But even now, just a very artistically created, artistically designed bat shape, DC would put a copy, put a trademark or, or you know, register that as, an, as a, a bat image. Oh, this is his weapon, or this goes on the side of his car, or this goes on his uniform, or his bat underwear, or whatever. And if you were to use that, then they would have, you know, recourse to be able to, to see you and say that you're using this stylized bat that we own, you know, find your own shape or find your own stylized animal. Yeah. Come up with a new animal. You can't have right. stylized, stylize a giraffe for your character <laughs> because the bat belongs to us. The other thing I just wanted to talk about with trademark, we talked a lot about trademarks not being able to be registered if they can be considered offensive and we touched on the Washington Redskins and we also had a guest speaker who is a band member of the Slants I don't know if anybody knows of them um but they they are like an all Asian American band and they wanted to register the name the Slants because they wanted to sort of like take back the power of that um stigmatized word yeah 
and they they literally litigated this for like eight years and the trademark office was like you can't do that because it's offensive um and they were like we are literally the people that it's offensive to and we're telling you that we're trying to make it no longer offensive but i was just wondering if you guys know of anything in the comic industry or in anything that you've worked on where there has been an issue with offensiveness with a trademark or I mean, we also like wanted to ask sort of related to that. Is there any like parameters that you specifically were given at any point when you were creators that was like, you can't do this because it's offensive or because it's like, yeah, inappropriate. Um, Just like, what's your experiences or anything that you can think of related to such a. The, The problem is the moving target what's offensive 10 years ago becomes perfectly acceptable now and vice versa. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of specific examples. I can think of plenty of examples of yeah. comics that were created in a different era that are absolutely cringeworthy right now. Right. Because... Like how about Bawana Beast from. Uh... <laughs> yeah. Well, I was thinking, for example, uh, Will Eisner, who is a national treasure and beloved in the comic book industry. If you look at some of the, Uh, spirit comics that he created in the 40s he was trafficking in racial stereotypes that were common in that day characters yep and and uh, african-american characters uh but that's not directly answering your question can anybody think of a specific example of something that was was or was not trademarked because of its offensiveness well was uh arse face uh Trademarked <laughs> my, my oh my god vertigo. I mean, he's he's a character. He had he had his own comic, didn't he? Uh, I mean, that's that's mainstream. Uh, that's a, that's that's a great question. Relatively mainstream. Yeah. Well, I the problem is the artist kept falling behind in his work. <laughs> And the thing is, talking about offensive, it wasn't just the name or the image, but his origin story. So you had a friend camp. In the 90s, there was a, a comic that DC published through its Vertigo imprint called Creature, which later got a several season long television show. TV show, yeah. There was a character in there called Arseface. He's called Arseface because he, his face literally kind of looked like a rectum. Oh, I'm looking up a picture right now. <laughs> you see why he looked why he was called Arseface. Now, speaking of offensive, his origin story is he tried to kill himself. He tried to blow his head off using a shotgun because he was so upset that Kurt Cobain had just committed suicide. So the name is kind of he's kind of triply offensive. Right. It's mocking the offensive suicide on many levels, yes. Oh my god. Yes. It's mock. <laughs> I just looked it up, did you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that's our state. Wow. I'm sure there's lots of offensive stuff that uh, people... Look, The Boys is an example. That That's taking the superhero iconography and what's the word I'm looking for? The superhero ethos and taking it to an extreme. And... Uh, DC Comics passed on publishing it because they felt it was just too offensive. And lo and behold, today, it's one of the biggest hits on television. Yeah, like we talked about um, Lenny Bruce. Am I saying, am I remembering his right. name correctly? The yeah. comedian? You would get arrested. Um, 
Yeah, we've been lately talking about censorship and, and our professor showed us like a bunch of videos of comedians and their apps from like the 1970s and how all so, like the, Bruce was in like the 50s. Yeah, and how all these audiences are laughing and then there was this there was this one um, father and son who was listening to the radio and heard this like offensive act and then sued because his, you know, young son was in the car and was just like blown away that that could ever be on the radio. But yeah, like that, like we've watched videos of, like she said, like obviously back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, but then also like we know what's out there today. Um, yeah, and yeah, like the the difference is so ridiculously drastic. So you're right. Like it definitely, it's a lot about what time you're like the, the society that you're creating in, but it's just, we were interested to know whether like that's talked about, like when you are creators, is it like, I mean, I'm sure if someone comes up with an idea and somebody else thinks that it's offensive at the time might be like, no, we probably can't do that because like people are going to find it inappropriate or whatever. But like, is there any like official, I mean, this is coming from us who are the people who are in law school who look for rules. (laughs) So it's like, was someone giving you rules that was like, make sure you don't do this, make sure you don't do that, you know, like. That's the comics code authority. Do you know what that is? No. It's a very long uh, history, and I encourage people to read uh, Jeremy Dauber's book. I'm blanking on the name of it, but it's it's a very condensed history of comics uh, in the, the 20th century, uh, American comics in the 20th century, because we can't ignore that the rest of the world was developing their own comics uh, at the same time, which became very different. Anyway, the uh, Congress believed that, uh, or no, the Congress hired uh, uh, Professor Wortham, who was a, uh, a psychiatrist who felt that the uh, comics and cartoons were uh, corrupting the youth. Contributing, and, yeah, to uh, d- juvenile delinquency. Right, and to uh, avoid being uh, shut down uh, the or the industry becoming a pariah industry, they decided to self-censor and they created the Comics Code Authority, which had a group of six or seven uh, people who would look at the comics and make sure there was no offensive material in them. And they had a, they had a book of rules and, and things that you weren't supposed to do. And then they would also review everything that, uh, you know. And it was voluntary. And, would right. Be, it was voluntary. And what it. happened what happened was uh, there were a couple uh, publishers who railed against it, refused to play along. And one of them was uh, Gaines Jr. What was his first name? It was Max, Max Gaines? William. Will, yeah. William, thank you. Son, right. of, son so, of Max. Right. So William Gaines. And he found an interesting workaround because he was publishing Mad Comics as, to become Mad Magazine. Why did he make it Mad Magazine? Because he discovered that um, for, for, amongst other reasons, if he changed from the comics format to a magazine format, he could continue what he was doing without being under the thumb of the Comics Code Authority. And many creators were, I had to shift gears, were drummed out of the business, where things changed, and the entire comics industry almost collapsed uh, under the weight of this censorship. So today, we would almost, we would laugh at the kinds of things that they found offensive. 
But you can see that what you're talking about really is a, a very dangerous, um, what's the word I'm looking for? The dangerous slippery slope. Slippery slope. When we worked at DC, and, and I assume it's still that way now, but uh, I mean, the fir- your first rule or your first you know criteria that you would use was your own common sense of course but for those of us who had it anyway yeah exactly (laughs) i think the first definition of a comic creator is we have absolutely no common sense (laughs) but once in a while something would you know you you would put it in a comic a scene or an image or you know some some action that would be objected to by the comics code and you would get DC would hear from them and they would say, oh, we, you need to change this or this has to be toned down or some change had to be made. And obviously we would then have to change it. It's a moving target. It's a slippery slope. You just don't know. And ultimately, the best arbiter of all of this is the public. I'm, I'm going to liken it to raising little kids. Many times when you're a parent, you presume a certain level of ignorance or idiocy on your children. You figure they're not capable of handling this or doing this. And yet, if you only loosen up a little bit, and Jennifer's smiling, she's thinking, because hmm. her father, in case you didn't notice by the similar last names, her father is on the line here. <laughs> but if you only give them a little room to explore and to experiment, you'll discover that children are far more capable than you often give them credit for. And I think that that is an apt comparison here. So, but this, I feel, is kind of off the copyright trademark. So I got, I got at least one trademark thing that I think is right to, your, right to your question. When we were at DC in the 90s, and maybe it's changed since then, we were not allowed to show the Chrysler building on one of our covers. Like, you couldn't have Superman flying past the Chrysler building or Batman jumping off it. And I know this because I remember being told it and being really unhappy because Daredevil, downtown at Marvel, used the Chrysler building on Daredevil covers all the time to phenomenal artistic effect. They, the Chrysler building, it's like it was designed for comic book covers. It is, it's perfect to have a superhero perching on or diving off of or something. And I was always like, how come they get to do it and we don't? And the reason I was told at the time was because... Mm -hmm. We're part of Time Warner AOL. We are a massive corporation. They will sue us, and we don't want to be sued. So Marvel feels comfortable rolling the dice because Marvel was self-owned at that point. I think this was pre-Perlman. So, you know, they were, it's not worth it, I guess, was the thinking from the Chrysler Building's trademark holder to sue this little comic book company, but it would be worth it to sue Warner Brothers. And there's... There's a certain amount where trademark, again, to my mind, inhibits creativity. Like, I get the owner of the trademark gets to decide that a comic book doesn't get to make a profit off of the likeness of the Chrysler building, you know. Uh, but with that, again, it's like anybody can go to New York and look at the Chrysler building. Like, I don't yes. understand why that. You can look at the Chrysler building. You can take a photo. You can take a photo of yourself in front of the Chrysler building, but you theoretically can't then take that photo of you and make it a commercial offering, right? You can't profit off somebody else's trademark. And I guess the idea of having the Chrysler building on a cover with Batman makes that Batman cover more 
commercially viable in some way, which I guess I started this argument by saying, yeah, it kind of does. And yet, <laughs> so there is a positive aspect to this. I'm playing devil's advocate again, because it can lead to some interesting creativity. The difference between the DC universe and the Marvel universe is the Marvel universe is basically an amalgam of the real world. Their stories take place in New York City and, and thereabouts, whereas we have uh, fictionalized versions of the cities in, I say we, DC Comics. So Metropolis and Gotham. Anyway, so in Superman Comics, for example, when Mike Carlin was the editor, he went wild with creating all these fictional products like soda cola because he couldn't use Coca-Cola. And I'm, I'm sure it was the Reisler building instead of the Chrysler building. And the fun part was, okay, so we're restricted, but we work in a medium where we have to stay within a box. Everything is within panels. That's what we call the boxes in comic books. And some may call that restrictive, but I call a limited palette a really wonderful vessel for infinite creativity. Because, for example, in the old days, printing was so primitive that you couldn't use anything more than very simple colors, which were divided up into their percentages of the combination of the four basic colors, what we call CMYK. Then computers came along and you could use any color under the rainbow. And what happened, in my view, is that many technicians became colorists and we lost a lot of the artistry of coloring. And that's just a long way around saying when you didn't limit your palette, you had something that was less artistic. You had in, in, a, in a very perverse way or in a counterintuitive way, you had less creativity because you had more options. So there's something to be said for the limitation of copyright in that way, how it promotes creativity. My purpose in, in that seeming digression was to point out that the limitation, the endless limitation of copyright and trademark does have some fringe benefits and the limited palette nature of creativity is one of them. Right. And here's my rebuttal to your rebuttal to my rebuttal to your rebuttal, which is Robert Frost refused to write free verse. He would use established poetic forms, including he would use blank verse, but not free verse, because I think he's the one who compared it to playing tennis without a net that you had to have certain boundaries, limitations, walls, whatever, to create great art. If there weren't some sort of structure within which you had to work, the art was not going to be great. My point is, but he didn't need to have the law telling him that. He was able to just do it himself. So I see your point about Soder Cola and these other brands and stuff that were created because of trademark copyright I would argue you don't need that. An artist doesn't actually require to be legally bound in order to decide that he or she will work within some other predetermined boundaries than the law. The one thing I wanted to discuss about the whole like Disney thing was one point that was brought up. I think I believe it was brought up in the law review article that we read, but it was brought up in class um, was that even when copyrights start running out of different characters disney is very likely to come after someone for other things like 
disparagement if someone tries to use a character for what they would consider like an inappropriate way. Um, like we've we've touched a lot on Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey, <laughs> um, and, how, and how it's like you know using Winnie the Pooh for a ridiculous purpose that's nowhere near what Winnie the Pooh was meant to be um and the fact that people believe that Disney would not be having that um if somebody tried to do that with Mickey Mouse for example um so if you guys have any thoughts about that about Disney okay but also like if you think like how do you think that DC for example might respond because I feel in my I can tell you different than Disney (laughs) Yeah, I can tell you a funny example. Uh, I am a religiously observant Jew and I keep my head covered. And when I'm not wearing a hat, I wear a yarmulke or a kippah. Um, One of the the kippot, one of the yarmulkes that I had crocheted for me had a big bat symbol in the middle of it. And I don't know if I actually have it here or not to show, but it's a podcast, so that wouldn't do any good anyway. (laughs) And I'm walking down the halls and Linda Fields who was the, uh, what was her official position? She was uh, the, the president's right-hand woman, uh, probably the real power in the company because that's the way these things usually work. Executive she, assistant, I guess you would say now. Yeah, executive assistant, but you know. Uh, so she stops me in the hallway and she says, hey, where's the trademark on that? Where's the TM? To this day, I still don't know if she was joking or not. <laughs> probably <laughs> Probably not. a little of both, right? Yeah. Probably a little bit of both. I mean, on the one hand, this was fan art, which is a whole area of uh, copyright and trademark that we haven't gotten into. Uh, This was fan art, albeit in a crocheted form, and it was not a retail product that was going to be anything other than an individual wearing a one-off unique uh, crafts project. On the other hand, it was utilizing the uh, very much registered trademark symbol of Warner Brothers DC Comics. But there is a culture of fan art which uh, uses, uh, well, creates derivative stories from all of their favorite characters. And this stuff goes on all the time. Here in America, or I should say in Western comics, we're so strict, or the, or the corporations are so strict about, um, uh, cop- uh, about defending copyright and trademarks that they will come down like a ton of bricks on you for uh, utilizing their characters in ways that they feel are inappropriate or just financially not remunerative to them. And yet in uh, modern comics overseas in Japan, as I understand it, and in, in um, Far East culture, they actually have, uh, and I don't know what it's called, but they have a, uh, a category of comics that are specifically fan comics. And they even have conventions. And some of these fans become so popular that they become professionals themselves. It's, in, in essence, a farm team system. And we're losing out on that here in Western comics, I believe, and in Western popular culture in general, because we don't have a looser uh, take on, on intellectual property. And therefore, there is no farm team. There's probably talent out there that are saying, you know what, it's just not worth the hassle. I'm not going to create. We're losing out as a result. Yeah, I guess that's my feeling in general about uh, fanfic and fan art and stuff like that, is that for some time now, I've started, like over the past 10 or 15 years, I've slowly realized that I've started to think that I think 
if Mickey Mouse or Superman or whomever entered public domain, there would be so many just bad, stupid, deliberately offensive, amateurish, gross takes on the characters like the Winnie the Pooh horror thing. But I think you would accident you would probably get also more truly great uses of those characters than you've gotten from the actual copyright and trademark holders over the past couple decades. That's my guess is you would get, my God, there'd be so many Superman porn parodies. There'd be so many Superman just ripping people apart and blah, blah, blah. But you're also going to get, my guess is one of the truly, truly great Superman stories ever. I mean, not to mention Mickey Mouse. Seriously, when's the last time there was an actually great Mickey Mouse story? Fantasia, 1941 or whatever that was? Arguably his his use in, you know, Who Framed Roger Rabbit? I'll bet if Mickey Mouse entered the public domain, you would get some honest-to-God great Mickey Mouse pieces of art. I think Mickey Mouse Clubhouse isn't great. <laughs> Obviously, that was an exception. Obviously. so yeah anyhow ultimately a free society is going to ultimately be the best arbiter of what deserves to exist and anytime we try to to limit it uh i'm not saying that we should be uh anarchic but i'm saying that anytime we try to limit it unnecessarily we end up going off the rails. Uh, a liberal society, uh, as in a liberal arts society, needs that freedom of expression and that freedom of derivation. And uh, as Scott pointed out earlier, we've gone so far uh, afield of where copyright and trademark started and what its original intention was that we're due for a corrective. That's a pretty good place to end. So, Jen, you had a conversation with a staff attorney who works in the comic industry. We're now going to recreate that conversation because they were unable to be recorded. Yeah, so you're going to ask me the questions that we formulated for them, and I will try my best to do justice to their answers. Cool. So the first question you asked them was, would Disney and other large media companies be able to block the expiration of copyright protection on their characters? We talked about the original Mickey Mouse copyright running out soon and how Disney may respond to that. We don't think there's a way they could renew that protection, but Scott and Gorf are not convinced. Yeah, so the copyright is going to expire, um, and there isn't a way to extend it unless Congress specifically extends copyright in general. Um, So a while back, they added an additional 20 years to the length of copyright, um, which was added and this I found really interesting um it was added largely because copyright in Europe used to last a lot longer than here in the U.S. um and there was an economic point of view that we were at a disadvantage because European um companies could use works that were created here but we couldn't use theirs because our copyrights would run out um before theirs did oh wow that's interesting yeah so um The attorney that I spoke to does not think that Congress will agree to extend the copyright anytime soon, um, and there is no way for a corporate copyright owner to specifically extend uh, a copyright on a particular character. Um, 
So they did mention several ways to protect characters, um, and at least one of them we definitely talked about in class, that every time a new version of a character is published, um, there's a new copyright term that begins with the publication of that character. Um, So, for example, Disney has done so many different versions of Mickey Mouse that there's continually going to be versions that have copyrights. Um, And this is why they continue to do updated versions. Um, And so the updated versions will allow people to use the older versions that the copyrights run out on. um, But all of the new versions, people, other people doing new creations have to make sure that they're not uh, too similar to the newer versions. Another way that companies can protect their characters is that they can still own trademark rights in those characters. Um, So like what we were talking about in our conversation about the Superman S. um, Was that what we were talking about? Oh, we were also talking about the the bat symbol. Oh, right. um, And how that's trademarked. Um, So even if a new company or an independent artist creates a new version... um, if there's still a trademark on, like I said, a logo or a character image, then they're not going to be able to use that trademark in branding and packaging, um, even if that character is in the public domain. Um, So that's definitely going to limit the way that they can commercialize uh, the characters that the copyrights have run out on. Wow, so people have to be really careful with what they choose to use. Yeah, exactly. Like, if someone decided to use um, Steamboat Willie, the original Mickey Mouse image, um, that is trademarked on merchandise, then Disney would have a claim for that. Um, And so that brings up an issue that some people think that you shouldn't be able to use trademark law to overcome copyright expiration. Um, But as far as what the law, where the law is at now, that's what's likely going to happen. Interesting. Um, So moving on to your second question that you asked the attorney, you had asked, what are your thoughts on fan art in other derivative works and whether they are fair use? Darren Vincenzo had found an article on this topic that we thought was really interesting, and we wanted to get the attorney's reaction and thoughts on the article and the topic. Yeah, so uh, this I wish that we had touched on a little bit more in our discussion um, with the three creators, um, but unfortunately we just ran out of time, so uh, I got a lot of good information from the attorney. Um, So he said that fan art, by its definition, um, is copyright infringement um, because it's fans using the exact same character that is copyrighted and not even trying to change the character at all. Um, Unless like we talked about in class, unless it's a parody or it's making a comment um, in a way that it could be defined as fair use. Um, But he did say that historically a lot of copyright owners don't sue artists over this type of work. Um, mostly just because it's like an amateur versus professional situation where what is considered fan art is just fans. Like it's just amateurs. It's not people who are, and if it is people who are professional artists, they're not usually using it commercially. They're not producing it and selling a lot of copies of it, um, specifically to make money. It's just them loving the character and creating new art that has that same character that they love. Right. And he said that a lot of copyright owners um, 
they think about the economic aspect of it and how their fans are the ones that are buying the products that they're making with the original character. Um, and they appreciate that. Obviously, that's how they keep making money. So they don't want to upset their fans <clears throat> and have it be this whole big thing where people start like boycotting them and their products because they're going after just fans creating this art based on characters that they like. Right. And the fans are helping the character live on. Yeah, exactly. So it's sort of going back to that whole idea of like incentivizing creativity, um, which is what copyright is meant to do, like we talked about. But I think this is a way that it can be done where copyright is not like involved, where it's kind of ignored, if that makes sense. Right. The attorney specifically brought up the term tolerable use, um, which is not a legal term, um, but it's sort of a play on fair use um, because, like I said, most fan art is not actually fair use, um, but people in the industry call it tolerable use because they're able to tolerate it. They're able to just let people do it and kind of say, like, who cares because it's not affecting whether they're able to make money off of that character. Um, another thing that the attorney brought up that I thought was interesting and I never really thought of was there is a concern that fans have turned around and brought lawsuits against these companies um, because of posting their fan art mm -hmm. and the company not doing anything about it. But later, the company either using the fan art as inspiration or independently create something that is very similar to the fan art. And then the fans think that the company stole their idea. Um, but generally these are just nuisance lawsuits. They don't have um, any actual basis to them. Um, especially because most of the time the fan art didn't have its own separate copyright. It wasn't registered. Um, and it'll also usually be years and years later. The attorney gave me one specific instance of a guy who sued DC um, because 15 years prior, um, he had drawn Batman and he sent it to DC. Um, I think he was like a little kid and he sent it to DC and he was like, this is how I think Batman should look or whatever. Um, and again, 15 years after he sent it, he thought that a new Batman that DC had created was too similar to what he had sent them. Um, and the court actually said that his fan art was an infringement of the original Batman. Um, so he wasn't allowed to sue DC for infringing on his copyright. So essentially it was one of those cases where DC said, um, this is tolerable use. We're not going to do anything about it. He just sent us this fun fan art, whatever. And then the the artist like came back and tried to sue them, and then the court was like, "No, no, no, can't do that because like you were in the wrong in the first place, basically." Yikes! <laughs> Not a good use of the court's time. <laughs> um, all right. So the last question you had asked the attorney um, was about AI art, artificial intelligence art, and how far it has come, even as recently as the last few months. You'd ask, what are the implications in a legal sense of the increased utilization of AI to create art? Does it matter that the artist is not the one physically creating the art if they put information into a software and that's what creates the image? You also had asked if the attorney thought if someone used software to create an image of a celebrity in the style of a particular artist, 
they should be allowed or should they be allowed to copyright that work? In other words, um, say an artist input for the software to create Brad Pitt sitting on top of a burning 747 in the style of painter Andrew Wyeth, which is the example that Scott raised in the course of our discussion. Then can they copyright that work if they don't own and or didn't create that person, the style, or the end result artwork? Yeah, so this was like a huge... um part of our discussion with the creators um just because like you just said like AI has come so far super recently that it's kind of like a hot topic in art right now um and the attorney basically said because of that there's not really an actual answer um thus far um They said that you have to look into the amount of creative input that is going into whatever the final creation is. Um, And another thing that he said that I didn't even think about was uh, if the person that's creating the art created the software, they have a much better chance of being able to copyright that piece of art. Wow, that's like art squared. (laughs) Right? Like, versus if they're just using, like, a commercial software that everybody can use, um, there's less of them actually doing something or having input um, in that case. Um, So, yeah, he basically said, like, it comes down to how much a person is putting in. Um, So if there's a lot of decisions that goes into what's being put into the software again, more likely to be copyrightable. So if you only make three decisions and you say this person, this location, this style, that's less likely to be copyrightable than if you're putting in like a hundred different decisions um, and it's harder for someone else to be able to put all of those decisions together at the same time. Um, He did mention that people are not generally entitled to copyright in a style Um, which is just sort of an offhand comment. It didn't um, matter all that much to this specific situation, but I thought that that was really interesting because style can be so um, distinct, and I think that that should be something that people are able to copyright um, because if you're using the same style as someone else and then creating a piece of art of something that is the same or similar, you're going to come out with like the same thing. (laughs) Like if I said, Oh, I'm gonna like paint myself in the style of Picasso. It's going to look like a Picasso painting. I'd probably think it was. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so the creative input is definitely a lot more limited with AI. um, But there still is, the opportunity for enough creative input that it is uh, copyrightable and that it should be. He did bring up a term, um, thin copyright, which again is not an official legal term, but it's something that people use in the industry, um, which basically means that someone who has a copyright in something, it's like they have part of it that they have a copyright in, but not necessarily all of it. Um, So the court might hold that an original piece that someone created using a software only has copyright protection for that person in what they added that made it different than something else versus, like, copyright in the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. 
Um, so one example of this thin copyright is that if you go to a certain spot that's like a popular photo op spot and you take a picture, then you do have copyright in that photo, but someone else can go and take a picture in that exact same spot at the exact same time. Um, and if you want to get even more specific, the same date, Mm -hmm. same type of camera, um, basically everything is the same. The court would say that they're not copyright that's not copyright infringement they're not infringing on your copyright just because they created this scenario that was the same as you and then the same product came out of it so basically the original for the person with the original photo has a very thin copyright they have to be able to separate out the elements of their picture that are copyrightable um, because overall the picture is going to look almost exactly the same so if the original person edited like the lighting or they did something specific to take the picture where the lighting was specific then they would be like oh okay I have a copyright in the way that this was lit or the way that I edited it but it's not the entire thing that's copyrighted and it's not an infringement just because someone else has almost the same picture yeah so basically with AI art um it's very complicated and muddied still um, now, and it's likely that there's going to be a lot more coincidental similarities with art that comes out of AI than intentional ones, whereas when you're doing art by hand, um, you're generally not going to coincidentally come up with basically exactly the same thing. Um, so that is just a tricky issue that the law is going to have to figure out what to do with. Wow. I'm excited to follow this trend. Me too, man. Me too. (laughs) Thank you so much to everyone for listening to this unique episode of Live Laugh Law. We hope you enjoyed learning a little bit about entertainment law. And thanks so much to our special guests and contributors for helping us out.